From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll probably know by now that some 80% of people accused of witchcraft in early modern Europe were women. But there were countries where the majority of witches were not women, but men. Among those, there was one in particular where some 91% of all those executed on charges of witchcraft were male. It was Iceland. Then as now, a volcanic plateau with mountain peaks, ice fields, glaciers and a coastline of fjords. It was then an almost entirely rural society, governed by the Althing, one of the world's oldest parliaments, though then chiefly operating as a court, but under the rule and influence of Denmark. And the Danish king, Christian III, had in the middle of the 16th century imposed Lutheranism on his Icelandic subjects. But in Iceland, folk beliefs continued and people lived cheek by jowl. And out of this context, witchcraft accusations and prosecutions began. Dr. Olina Geruth Thorvadardottir holds a doctorate in Icelandic literature and folklore from the University of Iceland, and is an award-winning author. She won the Icelandic Literature Prize 2020 for her work with a title that translates as Magic, Religion and Medical Practice, a Historical Approach. She's also been an MP in Iceland's parliament, and so she is the perfect person to approach to learn about this fascinating period of Icelandic history. It's lovely to welcome you on the show. I'm really delighted to hear about this because this is something about which I am almost completely ignorant. I've read about the unusual case of Icelandic witchcraft in passing a lot, but it's just wonderful to be able to go into it in some depth with you. I wonder if you could start by giving us a sense of what Icelandic culture and society was like in the 17th century. Well, to be fair, 17th century... Iceland was a cruel time, and the nation was small. Only about 50,000 people were living in Iceland at the time, and common people suffered poverty, famines, epidemics, harsh nature with volcano eruptions and very hard winters at the time, and not least a harsh judicial system court system, and also somewhat an unclear legislation. So there were many odds to be faced at the time. We belonged to the Kingdom of Denmark at the time, 
and the conversion from Catholicism to Lutheranism had recently taken place in 1550, but the church had a very strong influence in the public's spiritual life, and for centuries the Catholic Church and the Pope in Rome had made an ongoing attempt to eliminate heresy and witchcraft in the whole continent of Europe. And this, in fact, was a war against folk religion, folk customs, folk medicine, and folklore in general. And this was an ongoing war that was raised by the Catholic Church in the 12th and 13th century, but developed into a war against witchcraft and was maintained by the Lutherians in the 17th century. And this was the wave that rushed ashore in Iceland rather late, but rushed ashore nevertheless in the early 17th century. Okay, that's fascinating. And I definitely want to ask you some more questions later about the role of the church. But perhaps, first of all, you could tell us a bit more about the forms of folk magic and sorcery, folk medicine, that were practised in Iceland? Well, witchcraft or magic itself, in the old sense, was a part of the Icelandic culture for centuries. And it's an ancient practice rooted in Old Norse customs and culture. And according to the oldest Icelandic and the oldest Norse literature we have, like the poetic Eddas, Eddukvæði, and Heimskringla, written by Snorri Sturluson, Globe of the World, is the meaning of the title. This is the oldest literature we have in Iceland, and it was written sometime between the year 1000 and 1300, but the poetic Eddas are quite older, and these are primitive sources of our knowledge in ancient Norse pagan beliefs and folk beliefs. And magic is closely linked to the highest god of pagans, Odin. And this literature also introduces the form of the old seder, which was an ancient magical ritual of sorcery and prophecy. And that is very closely linked to poetry and combined with knowledge and science as well, not least with folk medicine. So the old Icelandic word for magic is fjölkingi. That means an extensive knowledge. So magic has close connection to wisdom and spiritual power in the Icelandic sense. Later on, the word fordæða was introduced in Icelandic language in the Icelandic sagas. And that means what you would call today black magic. But originally, we didn't have a negative term for this practice, magic. So in Iceland, when it comes to 16th and 17th century, the idea of magic is mostly linked to healing and folk medicine. But when the influence of the church comes into the matter and the propaganda of a contract with the devil, etc., then things get harder. So elsewhere in Europe, there's been a sense that the Reformation was having an impact on the witchcraft trials in that it was creating an atmosphere of, 
apocalyptic angst, really, the sense of the end of the world coming. And so people saw the world in black and white terms, saw the devil everywhere. But there's been no kind of convincing link found between one confession or one denomination of the church and the rate of witchcraft prosecution. But are you saying that you think that in Iceland the role of the church was actually much more important? Particularly, I'd be interested in whether you think it's something to do with the Lutheran church and its creation in 1550 that had an impact on witchcraft trials. Well, the persecutions in Iceland started in the Lutheran time. They didn't start earlier. We have one example of a woman being burnt at the stake in 1343. That was a nun that was executed by a court of the church. But that was the only incident that we had before the persecution started in the 17th century. And that was in Lutheran time. I do not know of any researches on the church's influence on the public in Iceland at the time. But my feeling is that the church has very strong influence because we were a very small nation, only 50,000 people living here. But there was a church in every district, in every fjord, so to speak. And the church's ceremonies were almost the only assemblies for common people at the time. So they came to church whenever they could and listened to the preaching of the priests. And the preachings at the time were very occupied by the dangers of the devil and the contract with the devil and the harm that witchcraft would do to your mind and your soul and to your neighbors. So the propaganda was very strong and powerful at the time. Okay, so that's really interesting. So I think that's absolutely right, that if people are talking about witchcraft, it's constantly being impressed on people, they're more likely to see it. But the other question I wanted to ask from what you'd said is that for the most part across continental Europe, it seems that those who are convicted of witchcraft were innocent they aren't practicing magic, let alone harmful magic. Do you think that in the Icelandic case, we can see evidence that those convicted as witches were practicing some sort of magic? Well, yes. I've studied all the cases that were brought to trial in Althingi. Althingi at the time was more of a courtroom than a legislative assembly. And it was functioning as a Supreme Court in Iceland. And I have studied all the cases that were tried for Althingi. And according to the written documents, in some cases, maybe 50% of the cases, you had some kind of evidence that people had runes or little pieces of wood where they had carved in runes and magical letters. But this was all linked almost 90% of these runes were linked to healing and magical experiments to heal other people or protect yourself. So the main reason for practicing magic in those times in Iceland were not to do anyone harm, but to heal and, and make life better. These times were an uneducated times. And people had their own means to try to make life better. And this was the underlying reason for most of the cases that were brought to trial. 
Yes, that's really interesting. So these things are being recast as something negative when actually these are just rituals or practices that are designed to try and alleviate life. Yeah, well, in contrast with these experiments, you had hard times, people being very much afraid of the devil's power, listening to the preaching in the churches every Sunday or whenever. And so the fear of magic was very widespread at the time and became worse and worse. So the hysteria, so to speak, that spread out only got worse and worse by the time because the church's propaganda was very strong. And the judicial system did not help the traditions of court because if you were accused of magic, you could ask for an oath. And that meant that 6 to 12 people had to swear an oath of your innocence. So you had to ask your neighbors and the people around you to swear that you were not a witch. But in the atmosphere of this fright and fear, nobody was willing to do that. If you were a suspected witch in the first place, nobody was willing to swear, or very few at least, were willing to swear your innocence. So your life depended on your neighbors that were afraid and terrified by the very thought of witchcraft. Exactly the neighbours who might have accused you in the first place. Yeah. Although one might think that, actually, if you think someone's a witch, I always think the thing you don't want to do is upset them, so you might have sworn their innocence just not to upset them. Yeah, well, these cases were complicated, and people in Iceland, they lived in close societies, many small societies, so to speak. Iceland at the time was a rural area and no urban development had taken place. So people lived in farms, they lived together, they had their function, generations living together in small or medium big households. So interaction between people became sometimes complicated. People were quarreling, people fell in love, they got jealous and They were forced to work with each other and live with each other within the four walls of the household. So there, of course, were many psychological reasons for what happened. Yes, let's talk about that in a second. Let's do some statistics so that we get a sense of the scale of the witchcraft craze in Iceland. What are the dates for the witchcraft trials and how many people were brought to trial or convicted in the end? The first execution that we can be sure of took place in 1608. That was a woman who had murdered a child by putting it into a boiling water, unfortunately. Most likely insane woman and something very dark happening around her. But this was not actually a typical witch trial. This was more like a punishment of similarity because she had murdered the child in this terrible fashion. She was burnt at the stake, but she was the first one in the 17th century. But then 1625, the next witch execution took place. The last one that was executed by a district court took place in 1683 and in Althingi in 1685. And there were a few trials after that until the end of the century, but the persecution faded away with the century, so to speak. 
So we had 22 people executed as witches in this period of time, but only two women. And only one of them that we can be sure that was executed as a witch, as such. If I withdraw the first execution I mentioned in 1608. So this was very much unlike the development in Europe where most of the accused witches were women and very few men that were burnt at the stake. This was vice versa in Iceland. Yes, yeah, so I mean, it's unusual, the later time frame. I mean, there are cases happening absolutely at this time, but that it starts relatively late and finishes about the same time as many. Why do you think it's later than elsewhere? It has to do with geographical reasons, I think. Iceland is a peripheral area in Europe, and we were short of some fundamental institutions at the time and interior pillars like educational ones. And only the sons of wealthy farmers and officials could have some education. And they had to get that in the neighbor countries, in Denmark mostly. And when they returned home, they brought with them the newest trends from Europe and the witch craze or the persecutions had been ongoing in Denmark, for example, for almost 100 years when we started to have witch trials in Iceland. So those young men, when they came back home to Iceland, they became officials, lawmen and magistrates. Some became priests and provosts who implemented the policy of Maleus Maleficarum, Maleficas, the dark book, the hammer of witches, as it has been called. That is a book that was published in Germany in 1486. It was written by two clergymen or monks, Kramer and Springer were their names. And this book had enormously strong influence on legal proceedings in witch trials in Europe for centuries. And when the secular authorities combined forces with the authorities of the church, there was, so to speak, no shelter to be found anymore for those accused of witchcraft. And this happened in Iceland as well as elsewhere in Europe, once those waves of influence from the Maleus Maleficarum reached Iceland. And even though this book had no legal value in Denmark or elsewhere, or had no legal value in Iceland, its influence in the minds of those that were practicing law and priesthood at the time. So according to the Danish law, no one should be sentenced to death unless having been tried by the High Supreme Court, which means at least at Althingi in Iceland. But in fact, Althingi at the time, as I said, it was a court rather than a legislative assembly. But despite this, 50% of all those that were executed as witches in the 17th century were in fact executed by district court and not by the judgment of 
Alþingi, even though Alþingi confirmed the verdicts later on. So this was in fact a violation of the law in force at the time. And I think this was also due to the lack of knowledge of law because the judges and the magistrates, they based their decisions on customs of other lords and nations, as they frequently put it in their arguments, and the words of the Bible. So the priests had their influence in the development of how the persecutions spread out so I'm quite confident that it has to do with the education of young Icelanders that went to Denmark and Europe. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare It's interesting because Iceland, as we've sort of been alluding to at this time, is essentially a colony, I suppose, a possession of Denmark. And we've got the Danish influence in the education of these young men. But you've got Danish law saying this has got to be tried at a Supreme Court. And yet witches are being tried, we'd say, willy-nilly everywhere at these local courts. So the impact of Danish culture is great. The impact of Danish law is perhaps more limited. Yeah, exactly. And it seems like the legislation was somewhat unclear, chaotic, so to speak, and the knowledge of the magistrates and the judges was not there. 
they were sometimes putting forward the words of the Bible, sometimes the words of other lords and nations, sometimes the Danish directives. And uh, Jung's book, the Icelandic law book that was in force at the time, was sometimes not even mentioned. So it's a completely chaotic system whereby the sort of goalposts are moving all the time. So they'll use one particular law to convict a witch, but if that doesn't work, then we'll quote something else. And Right. When I started studying these cases, I could also see that people were convicted for things like contract with the devil, heresy and doing harm with witchcraft. They never confessed, even, until they had been sentenced to death. Then there came a confession, but the confession was something quite different from the accusation. Like, well, I have a rune letter at my home called Salomon's Insigli, which was a protective magic. Or, well, I admit that I tried to cure a cow something like that. So there was an inconsistency between the accusations and the confessions. So the situation was quite chaotic, so to speak. So does that mean that when somebody was accused, that that nearly always ended in conviction and execution? What's the ratio between the number of people who are being brought to trial and those who are being convicted and executed? Well, most of the cases ended at the stake. Most of the cases, if there was an accusation of harm doing. There's one exception, though. In those cases where priests were accused of witchcraft, and that happened sometimes, no priest ever got burnt at the stake. There were mostly common people that were executed. Those in higher ranks of society escaped. Ah, What a surprise. (laughs) And the other thing I want to ask before coming back to this question about gender is about where accusations are coming from. Are they springing from those tight-knit communities you described? Well, there are several reasons. Mostly these accusations come from neighbours. They spring out of jealousy and, you know, people fall out of peace with each other. These are most often the reasons. And then somebody that has accused someone else of witchcraft turns to the priest or turns to the lawman to have support, and the investigation starts. And once the investigation has started, things get worse for the accused. Was this a system in which torture was used to provoke a confession? We have no proof of torturing being used in these cases, no written proof. But we have evidence of defendants being treated very badly, as in the case of 1656, when a father and son were accused in Skutulsfjörður, in the Westfjords, on Kirkjubol. They were kept in a kind of a cave, earth cave, for months. So when they were drawn up from there, many weeks later, they had lost their hair and they had lost their physical ability and they had lost their health. Of course, this was a torturing treatment, 
but it was supposed to be a jeopardy. <laughs> but of course, this was torture, in fact. I mean, that sounds absolutely horrific. And it would be interesting to talk about some of the cases. But let's first of all address this question of the fact that you've got a father and a son here. You said that the Malleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of the Witches, was a great influence. But that's really misogynistic. So why do we end up with the vast majority of witches who are accused and convicted and executed in Iceland being men? That is complicated as well. I think that has to do with the society itself. The fact that we lived in closed households, as I mentioned before, and like I said, we were a rural society. No urban development had taken place. The women were part of the household. They were taking care of the man. They were giving birth to children. They were taking care of sick and older people. They were providing the food and the clothes. So there was no ground for exclusion or elimination of individuals. I think this was the main reason. The men were the ones that went between farms, and so they gave more opportunities for suspicion of doing something where nobody else could see what they were doing. This may not be the only reason, but I think this is one of them. In Europe, the idea of the lonely witch is very strong. You know, women that were living alone were boiling their folk medicine, their grass and herbs, even interfering with fertility by giving birth control herbs and helping with things that were not so well seen by the church. These women were very often prosecuted, and it was easy to build up propaganda against them. And hate against women is known in history, and it's very easy to fire it up. But the situation in Iceland was such that it wasn't as easy as it was in urban societies like most of the European countries. So where we have this situation that women were in minority of those accused, that in my research is in countries that were peripheral or not in the middle of Europe, were on the edges geographically. And that was definitely the case in Iceland. It's interesting because one of the other places where there's a lot of male witches is in Russia and actually Estonia at the time. And in Russia, the literature suggests that it is also to do with men being itinerant. They're folk healers, they're shepherds, they're vagrants, they're people who are wandering around. And that sort of condition of being perceived to be outside of the law, perceived to be spreading possibly malicious rumours or even illness or whatever between spaces is the kind of condition of people being accused of a witch, which is very similar in many ways to what you're saying about men in Iceland. And, you know, the further away from the centrum of Europe, the fewer women percentage-wise were executed, like in Estonia, in Finland, in Iceland, there were fewer women than men. So there are geographical reasons. And it also has to do with the size of the societies, I think. 
Yes, that's really interesting. The numbers overall are, however, quite small. So there's almost a question to ask about how, if we're talking of the region of 20-something cases or 20-something people executed, it's only a small population of 50,000. But proportionately, do you think it's still relatively a small number of people who are tried for witchcraft? Well, if you look at Iceland as a whole, this is a small percentage. But the fact is, these persecutions mainly took places in one area of the country, and that is the Westfjords. So it's a high percentage of those that lived in the Westfjords. Most of the executions took place there. Fourteen, half of them took place there in one-fourth of the country. Elsewhere in Iceland, we didn't have those circumstances that scholars say that are necessary for a witch craze to burst out. One of the reasons for persecutions in this scale, as was in Europe and in the Westfjords of Iceland, is that the secular authorities and the authorities of the church have to combine their forces. That was not the case in the south of Iceland and in the east of Iceland, but in the Westfjords, this was the case where very strong provosts and priests joined forces with the lawmen in the area, with the consequences that 14 people in the area were executed in this time period. Right, so that's really fascinating that it focuses in this period in a particular area because that has all the right conditions for it. That makes a lot of sense. Why do you think the trials come to an end in Iceland? I think the reason is mostly the same as for Europe in whole. At the end of the century, people were just starting to get bad feeling about this. Those people in Iceland that were the main role players... <laughs> in this development, they were getting old and tired and they were dying. So once their personal influence faded away, the situation changed. And also because the Danish king and the Danish authorities were starting to realize that there was something off in the legal practice in Iceland. So they were giving instructions also about, you know, reconsidering the method of legal procedures. So I think, in general, people's opinion on this were changing slowly. People were losing interest, and the authorities were seeing their way out of this. That's fascinating, because essentially you're saying this is a generational thing. There's a couple of generations that are pressing the witchcraft accusations, and then... Their grandchildren are saying, hold on a second, we don't believe this. Now, one last question. When I was looking into Icelandic witchcraft a little bit just before this conversation, I discovered this Museum of Icelandic Sorcery and Witchcraft in Iceland that has several grisly things in it. And I felt a little dubious about one thing in particular, and I want to put it to you. There was something called, forgive my pronunciation, the Nabrok or necropants, which are said to be a replica of a 17th century practice of flaying the skin from the legs and genitalia of a dead man. And, you know, the idea they seem to express is that the witch could put this on 
top of his own skin and then somehow the sort of flayed scrotum was literally to be used as a coin purse for magically generating money. It's a fantastic story. Is there any historical truth in it? Well, that's exactly what it is. It is a fantastic story, a terror story. We have no evidence. We have never found any evidence that this type of witchcraft was ever practiced in Iceland. We have found some paper pieces and wooden pieces with runes and magical letters on it. We have found some magical verses. We have never found anything in the direction of this. So this belongs to the dark, horrifying shadows of old folk tales that were made up under the influence of all this horrible propaganda that took place against the witches, which maybe were never witches at all. That's fascinating. I'm sure you're absolutely right. One last question. We've talked about a couple of different cases. Can you just, to finish us off, tell us one particular story or a particular witch that was accused that has stayed with you from your research? Well, I have always thought very much about Þuríður and her son, Jón. They came from the district of Skagafjörður. They had to walk all the way to the Westfjords where they had been hired as working people at the farm Selardalur, where the provost Paul Björsson, one of the main role players in this whole story, he lived there. And they had no horses, they were poor people, so they had to walk and they had to get past the waterfalls, they had to climb the mountains, and they obviously had a very hard journey all the way to Selardalur. It took weeks. But Jón was a young man and he liked to tell stories and he was not aware of the witch craze, of the fear that was so widespread in the area. So when they came to Selardalur and people started asking them how they managed to get all this way on foot, he started telling stories about the knowledge of his mother who could get them over the strong rivers and waterfalls. This meant that they were both persecuted for witchcraft. They came in May. They had been executed in August. So this is one of the stories that has been in my mind ever since I started studying this, mainly because in the Althingisbækur, in the written sources of the court, there is very, very brief description of what happened. It only says Althingi confirms the execution of the mother and the son, their names are not mentioned, that were burnt at the stake in Westfjords last year. Yeah, that is a really chilling tale and shows people's fear of strangers and also of those who can do something that other people can't. And they were outsiders, so they were easy to target. And what kind of magic they made, what harm they did, nothing. Only this young man loving to tell stories. Boasting of his mother's knowledge and how you know incredible they had been making this extraordinary journey. I think actually this story is the symbolic one. 
for this time period in general in Iceland. Well, that's a very sad tale, but many of these witchcraft stories are sad tales, so it's perhaps an appropriate place to end. Thank you so much for taking us through Icelandic witchcraft and giving us a sense of what went on. It feels like there's so much more to read about it and I want to learn more, but it's been an amazing introduction and I'm very, very grateful to you. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you so very much for your support for Not Just the Tudors. Please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read them. And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.